I'll be reading from Hebrews 12, seeking. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Guys, so I've been thinking through this idea of you know uh, starting this year in a way that's gonna really make a difference in how we live our life. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I've got this fence that I've been waiting to build at my house to keep my dogs in. Um, we got this rookie one that's wired. They keep digging under it again now, but I got this cement in my garage, and I'm just holding on to it, ready for the project to start. We just haven't been getting around to it, and so just keeping it with me, you know, to help me uh, to to function best in the in the future. But uh, uh, I'm going to set it here, okay? This is I'm struggling a little bit. Guys, the author of Hebrews tells us that we are living a unique moment in history and time. There's the idea of what is it that we are supposed to be and look like as children of this day, but also children of the King. So, when I think about Scripture, I think about the idea that there is no golden age. Of Christianity. We often look back at Acts 2.42 as the ideal, but every generation has its own complex day and age that we live in, with its own questions, its own challenges, and its own complexities. And so our community, we are trying to live faithfully the orthodox belief that has been passed down through the apostles through years in Scripture, held within the canon. And we want to honor that and walk faithfully, but we want to apply it to our life in a way that makes powerful, transformative sense. As I've been thinking about our church and just praying, um, I shared with you guys at the turn of the year that uh, I felt like Isaiah 35 was something that God had for us. Um, can you just throw that text up on the screen. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice in joy and singing. And they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Something is going to take place both in the future when this verse is carried out fully when Jesus returns. But even now, his kingdom is starting to shake the earth and starting to burst up in places that we least expected. And, and for me, honestly, I love you guys, and I think about your lives and the challenges that we've been through in the last few years. And I know that, that we're almost walking through this season, this moment, and we're like, we just want to be faithful to Jesus. We just want to live out his kingdom. We want to love others. We want to, yes, blossom into the fullness of Christ. But as I was thinking, I'm, I'm just seeing like all this residue, all this stuff that we've carried, that we've picked up along the way. And many of us were so covered with the residue that we're jaded. 
And it's hard for us to even gauge our heart and allow the good news of Jesus to penetrate to the places of our deepest need. And so as we face this season of celebrating new life in Jesus on Easter, I'm so excited for that. We're actually going to have church in the morning. Imagine that. Uh, and so uh, I hope you guys all come to that. But uh, the idea that we are preparing for the next three weeks, a week after week, purging of that which is holding us back. Something that we do not need. Something that, that maybe we are carrying and we shouldn't be. We're talking about sin. The sins that we have committed. The sins that have been committed against us that we've suffered. And the sins that have happened in our presence. Because all of these things affect us. And for us to clear the space to allow for new growth, we've got to allow God's Spirit to sweep through our lives and take away everything that is unworthy of us as sons and daughters of King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray for us and we're going to dive into the Scripture. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that you are for us. You love us and you desire that we would find fullness of life in you. Lord, I pray that there would be a sense of hunger and thirst tonight. Lord, that your spirit would do a powerful work and that we would simply invite you in. So as you're sitting here this evening, friends, I encourage you to invite the spirit to do what you cannot. Invite God to affect your soul and bring renewal like nothing else can. In Jesus' name, amen. First John tells us in First John 1, 8, John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth, it is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. There is something about uh, taking the truth that God gives when he speaks about us, even when it's bad news, like, man, you have gone the wrong direction, and you are headed towards destruction. That's bad news. But when we take that truth and we internalize it into our life, that we acknowledge, God, you are creator, I am your creature, and I'm going to not only see that and acknowledge you, but I'm going to listen to what you have to say. That, that apart from a, a radical, transforming cleansing, I am unworthy of being in your presence. And to internalize that and to wrestle with it and to go, man, what do I do? Allow the panic of that reality to sit into our souls and allow ourselves to not only hear that truth, but also to let the beautiful truth of Jesus that he says, for all those who come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Or the scriptures that tell us if we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if we turn from our sin and we repent, we, we say, no, I'm going to shift my life towards Jesus. There is a transformation that takes place where he removes the debt and the consequence of our sin, welcoming us into eternity even now. Verse 9 tells us this very clearly. If we confess our sins... He is faithful to carry out his promises, is what that faithfulness is. He will not only forgive us, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The question that we have to wrestle with tonight is, what do we do with what we have done? Some of you, you're in this room, and you're carrying the weight of your sin and brokenness all alone. And you fear the day of coming into God's contact because you have no excuse. Oh, sure, you've tried to be your own lawyer. You've tried to compare yourself to someone else and say, at least I'm not that. 
Well, Jesus is the standard and perfection is the quality that only God can give us. So apart from Him, we are outcasts. Unclean. Unworthy of His goodness. What do we do with what we have done? Others of us, we have come to Christ. We said, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. I'm coming to you eternally, Jesus. You have rescued me from my sins, yet still you live with a pile of garbage in your life. The memory of your sinfulness is always in front of your eyes. Like David says, my sin is always before me. I go to bed and it's there. I wake up in the morning and it's there. But what if it doesn't have to be that way? What if the reality of what Jesus says actually can impact the way we wake up in the mornings and go to bed at night and view ourselves and the stories we tell and the narratives that we walk out as far as where do we fit in this story? Am I villain? Am I victim? Or am I both? Because no one is perfect. Nobody in this room can say, I've never done a thing that's wrong. I've never offended another. I've never caused harm to others. I've never shown rebellion towards God or ugliness towards my neighbor. We all are shot through with brokenness and sin. And apart from Jesus, we are stuck. We need a cleansing. We need a miraculous move of God to not merely say, okay, you're no longer going to hell, but I actually want to cleanse your conscience so that you view yourself as I do. So that you will begin to believe that when I see you, I see wholeness. I see beauty. I see something worthy of delight. You know, you and I were stuck in, in this, this linear time, which God has no very, he's not stuck in the same linear moment that we are. He's present to all moments, so in a way, he's already present to your refined, redeemed, whole self that you will be for all eternity, apart from your sin. Imagine what it would be like to be God and to be looking in this room like we all know we're not perfect, but when he looks at each one of you, he's like, delight, delight, delight. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's exactly what I had planned in your life. Yet we find that we carry stuff with us that we don't need to carry. And maybe it's not big stuff, maybe it's little stuff. It's, it's little things that we've done, little memories that we don't think are worthy of talking to God about, or little sins that, you know, they distract us, or uh, uh, they, they kind of just, they don't add much weight, but, but they're there. You know, they're, they're sticking around. Oh, gosh, I'm going to back here. Ooh. I was worried somebody thought I had, like, something back there. <laughs> it's just a rock. You know, and, and even like a rocking machine, you ever gotten a rocking machine? It just hurts when you walk around. And walk with a little limp. What if the cleansing and forgiveness of God, his, his miraculous removal of our ugliness was so full and so complete that we are actually free, not enslaved, not enslaved to your history, your storyline, your parental upbringing, all of the brokenness that we have in our lives, what if that doesn't have to be our primary way of living in the world? How do you deal with what you've done? I pray that Satan, the accuser of the saints, who day and night accuses you before God, does not have your ear. Because it is all too easy to believe about ourselves and align ourselves with what Satan says. It is easier to do that than to live by faith and align ourselves with what God says. Because Satan, he, he tells the truth. Oh, you did X, you did Y. That really happened. And you can't be like, no, it didn't. That doesn't work. Like, you'll explode if you try and stuff stuff and just not deal with he takes the truth and says, look at what you have done. This is yours. There's nothing you can do to change it. 
You're stuck. You will always be stuck. And we can't change. We can't take away history. But what we can do is we can challenge the narrative that Satan paints of saying it is only you and your sin alone. Because me and my sin alone is bad news. But if I have given my life to Jesus, he says that wherever you go, I will be with you. And he says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, to be with you in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the failure, in the midst of you trying to deal with and walk through the reality of what we've done. And the truth is that where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. And so God has actually embedded within your soul, if you're a child of God, freedom in the essence of your soul. We are told that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's easy to do. It's easy for us to explain away things. Oh, just an accident. But to do so is to allow bits of brokenness to maintain in our life. Sin, although if you were a follower of Jesus, it does not have the same power it had. Sin doesn't have the power to condemn you to death. Jesus has paid for that. And so your eternity is set. You're, you're in the hands of God as you walk out faithfully following and, and carrying out what His truth is. He, he says, you're with me, I'm with you. Though you are unfaithful, I will be faithful. But for me to hold on to a rock or sin, it is not innocuous to hold on to sin. It is not of no consequence to pretend that sin is not sin or that it's not there because sin is toxic. It is poisonous. Sin that we carefully hide away out of either shame or pride is actually this bit of us that is filled with darkness and brokenness and we keep it isolated from the only healing that can actually do anything about it. I don't know about you, but for a long time I didn't trust God with my sin. I didn't trust Him to come close because I thought He was here to take from me, to punish me, and to give me consequences. And so I kind of was just like, yeah, I want to go to heaven but I don't want you to deal with me in this place where you could really hurt my soul if you are lying to me about your kindness and your forgiving nature. And so I kept God at a distance. And this is exactly what Satan wants to do in each of our lives. He wants us to isolate ourselves from the very hope and healing of God, which comes from his presence and his presence alone. Is it not Peter in Acts 3 that says, repent? of your sins, that times of healing may come in the presence of God. You see, we are, we are designed for relationship and intimacy with God. Some of you, you have the idea that, that your relationship with God is a chore, it's something you should want, but you don't really want, and so you kind of just work it out, like, i got to do my devotions again, like all these components but really, if that's our life, it's, it's really a mockery of what we're really designed for. You are not designed to feel discomfort in the presence of the God. You are actually designed to be fully known and loved. So for your ability to throw down the walls, and for you to go like, here's, here's what I am, and for you to invite this God who for you come to believe is not against you but for you. That, that his presence doesn't mean uh, uh, judgment, it means life. When we start to think about God in these ways, we start to think about sin in a different way as well. Because sin is one of those things 
or guilt, even in today's culture. We're living in a culture that is very um, guilt-aversive. We're trying to not be guilty. Many of us live our Christian lives that way as well, where we're not really living to like worship God, we're living to stay out of trouble with God. Does that make sense? And so you always like dance, break the line? Like, did I touch it? Is God mad at me now? Is he going to curse me? Like, what's going to happen? And so you like love the world, and you're walking and enjoying as much of the world as you possibly can, while all the while you're living this caged life. That's not really what we're supposed to be living. We're living this, we're supposed to be living a life that is coming to newness where we so know the heart of God that when we find any evidence of diversion, we go, what am I doing? God is the only true good. Why would I wander? And it will continue to happen. We are called to live lives of repentance. Um, today, we... Uh, are going to think through this um, idea of confession and what that looks like. Um, Luke 15 has a really interesting picture. It's, it's a parable that Jesus tells. You can turn your Bible there if you want. We're not going to read the whole thing. Uh, it's just for an illustrative, uh, an illustrative um, use tonight. I'm very visual in my mind. Um, in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about two sons and a father. The father's rich. One son says, Dad, give me my money. I want to go out into the world and live it up. And so son gets the money from the dad. Dad gives it to him and is sad. But the son goes off. The other one stays home. You know what I'm talking about? Robert's son. And so Jesus is telling a story, and the guy goes off. He has a great time, man. The world is fun until it's not. And he finds himself spending all that he had, and he's desperate. He's at the end of his rope. He is now longing to eat this pig's muck. And then he thinks to himself, wait a minute. I, I have a father. In Luke 15, 17, there's this moment of turning where his eyes are open. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I will perish here with hunger. See, this is that moment where, where circumstances are so bad that we have to pay attention and go like, what is going on? Stop. How is my soul? What, what is going on in me that's allowing me to do this outside of me? Pause. Whoa. What's going on here? This coming to himself is this idea of an awareness or a return to his true self. It's almost like coming out of the days. He says, I'm going to go back and see my father, Luke 15, 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Is this the image of God when you've done something wrong in your mind? He's going to be mad. See, my, my image about this. Really? I ought to, right? But this is the image that Jesus gives us of the Father. How drastically does my repentance need to change? How drastically do I need to rethink my hesitancy to return home when I finally wake up from my sin days? Why am I still with the pigs? Like, my father was running towards me this whole time. Like He was going to run towards me this whole time. He's been longing for my return. And he is overjoyed that I have started the journey home. This is confession. It is the recognition that we have gone astray. And we find ourselves going like, whoa, coming out of the days of like, what have I done? And the beautiful thing is the heart of God is to run towards, to embrace us, to kiss us. 21, and his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Penitence. Just this real... Oh. 
I think in our uh, day and age, we run the risk of taking sin both too lightly and too heavy. Too, too lightly in the way that we're like, eh, he'll forgive me. But also too heavy in that, oh, I've crossed the line and now I'm marked. Now I can never. Right? Where it becomes an identity. And we need to walk this line beautifully and carefully because it's not intended to be a, an identity. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Father, true. But I'm not just any father. I am the father of all grace. Compassionate, the giver of all good gifts. The one who delights to give mercy. This is the father. This is the one whom we are returning to, whom we are trying to make amends with. Do you know that God has done everything on his end of the stick to, to have full reconciliation with you, which means a relationship without any gaps? God has done everything. He's waiting for you. He's done, there's no unfinished work. He's like, come on. I'll, I'll give you all you want. And so it is that I think we're not intended to live just the one time turning and going like, okay, I am apart from God, I need to turn, and I need forgiveness, I need a Savior, thank you. And then this journey of like, okay, I guess I'm waiting for heaven. But no, it's intended to be a day after day, day by day, life of returning. I am so prone to wander, give me five minutes. And I find that the more mature I get, the shorter I go until I recognize, oh, oh crap, okay, get back on track. Okay, you are a son of the king. He loves you and embraces you. Life is found in him and him alone. Right? So God calls us to a life of return and not merely a single moment of returning. It is important if you've never given your life to Jesus. If, if you are still a long way off, like all by yourself and you're afraid, don't believe that God the Father is really good and you're stuck there and you're like, I guess this is it. Oh, I made my bed. I guess I better lay in it. That is the truth that Jesus is still dead and great. True. But because he has risen from the dead, you have an advocate who actually has come to you and comes next to you to deal with your sin. You see, apart from Jesus, this is like a garbage pile, right? This symbolizes sin. And many times we think about our sin like this pile between us and Jesus, and we're like, hey, what's up, Jesus? If only I could get around this stuff, or maybe I could like, work real hard and like, climb a ladder to you. And he's like, no, it's not going to work. But if we really, truly believe Jesus and what he says, it's not that he's on the other side. He is willing to come around to put his arm around us and stand with us. And go, check it out. Let's, let's start working through this. Every bit of this pile, I have the antidote and I'm willing to move slowly with you to start cracking some of these things open and bring it to the surface. And bring some of you guys are like, what's in the box? There's nothing in the box. <laughs> it's a rabbit. Um, let's start dealing with this. And as you trust him, you're going like, he, he's seeing my sin, he's not turning on me. He's seeing how bad I am, and it's not causing him to become angry at me. And it seems that everywhere I invite him to handle and interact with my brokenness, he leaves me feeling surprised by his kindness. And strangely, my, my heart, where there used to be torn bits, has begun to, to mend in those places. You see, Jesus wants to heal us. And so my invitation this evening is to believe the gospel. 
that Jesus truly has made the way for you to be perfectly at peace with the Father for eternity. That His death has paid the penalty for you and your sins. Therefore, there is no penalty for you remaining. So when you find that there is sin present in your life, don't be surprised. When I find sin, I'm like, yep, oh wow. Not surprised. Another rock. Jesus, okay. I invite us to both not make too much of sin and not make too little of sin. Holding the weight of recognizing its poisonous nature, of holding it as our primary narrative, but also making it this thing that marks you. Neither of those are biblical. Neither. Jesus has killed the power of sin, death, and the grave. So that when you're found guilty, it doesn't mean anything for you. It doesn't take anything away from your identity. It doesn't mean that you are a failure, that you are unworthy, that you don't belong, that you're a screw-up, that there's no room for you. When you find yourself with sin, you go, whoa, I'm human. Thanks, God, for making provision for that. Yeah, we can abuse this. That's where taking it seriously. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I know that that grieves your heart. But also, man, thank you for not allowing this to be the thing that defines me. So, uh, we see Luke 15, 22, but the father said to his servants, after the son says, let's go to the verse before that, sorry for context. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son. Notice. This my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost. And was found. And they began to celebrate. What if it became part of our ritual and rhythm to return daily? And you're like triggering these parties in heaven. Celebration, celebration, celebration. And God delights in your attention. He delights to hear the unique tone of your voice. Even when you're confessing that you failed him once again. He loves it. He loves it. Moving on. Yes, living a life of returning. First John 9. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you, you're living with sin in your life because you haven't brought it to God. You're so used to grace and forgiveness, you're like, yeah, he forgives me. Have you talked to him about it? Have you taken the time to confess, which is identify the unique sins? Say, God, I did this. This is true. I'm so sorry. Because yes, God will give you a grace that covers your life. I mean, the thief on the cross, he he did nothing good in his whole life. And yet Jesus says, today you're going to join me in paradise. Okay, so you, you don't have to worry about your eternity necessarily if you fully trust Christ. Yet, if you have this baggage of undisclosed junk that you're just like not talking to God about for some reason or unwilling to look at, or maybe you're not even aware it is there. Healing is available for you. Freedom is waiting. A lesser weight and burden is possible for you tomorrow. Because Jesus promises, if we confess our sin, He is faithful. You can count on it. It's 
forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the question for us this evening is, what do we do with what we have done? Two options, cover up or confess. God is the God who is here in our midst. Grace is available to you. Forgiveness is available to you. There's no hindrance for you. The only hindrance for you receiving grace and mercy, forgiveness and cleansing is your unwillingness to open yourself up to God and say, what is true? I did this. I'm broken. I need you. That's the only thing. You. You're the only thing stopping you from healing and wholeness. So the invitation is confession. Confession, uh, as 1 John says, brings two things. Forgiveness, which is uh, debt removal. Your record is clear. God sees you apart from what you've done. Innocent. Just as I designed you. That's what justification is. And it does the second thing, which is really interesting, and the evangelical church hasn't pressed into this nearly enough, but cleansing. You will forgive and cleanse. Which is this idea that when Jesus cleanses us, that feeling of defilement, the grime of being uncomfortable in God's presence, that feeling of being afraid to look into somebody's eyes, you know, those people with those eyes, they just look right in, you're like, don't, don't look at me, huh? what's going on? Huh? This idea that you can actually live in wholeness, the cleansing that God can bring, that experientially you can feel clean in his presence because he will cleanse you if and when we confess our sins. So, wrapping up. First, confession is acknowledge, we must acknowledge the specific wrong committed as sin. It's not that you're going to be banished if you don't. It's that there's healing that needs to take place. If you're holding a sin and don't address it, it's an area where you are actually stifling your spiritual vitality. And if you are giving safe abode to sin in your life, you can count on the fact that you will not grow in maturity. You will freeze in your process. So acknowledging these pockets of brokenness. Secondly, mourn specific sin as ugliness toward God and others. God, yes, it's true. I'm so sorry that I have rebelled against you and injured others. Thirdly, it is a determination to turn away from sin, away, away from sin towards God. I'm sorry, and Lord, with your help and your power, I will honor you with my life. Grace is dispensed through the mercy of God as we appeal by the blood of Jesus for grace. That grace shows up through in forgiveness and cleansing. As I said, that cancellation and removal of your defilement, your made clean. That is the end of uh, the lecture section of our time tonight. Um, I'm going to lead us into a time of uh, experiencing this, where this isn't so much like, oh, you're going to learn something. This is, okay, let's see if I open myself up to God, what that will be. What? What really could freedom feel like? Okay? So, uh, before we dive into that, I want to make sure you're set up to succeed. John, why don't you come up? We're going to just have a little bit of a, a question and response time. So, if you have questions of like, what about? Hey, I'm not sure. This is to help you in the next like 10 minutes after when we're actually going to walk through like some scripture that King David gives us about the heart of repentance. And we'll do a meditation that will open your hearts up, I pray, to the Spirit to do that forgiveness and cleansing work. Okay? So everybody shift in your chairs, get all out of your system, yep, yep. 
So, John, I kind of just said, hey, as you're listening, is there a question you can start us off with about um, this whole thing? So, what you started to come to my mind. Obviously, we live, we live in a culture, in a day, in a society, in which there's a clear delineation of what's right and what's wrong in terms of live your own truth. We no longer as a society obtain to the fact that there is an objective truth. And that can be posed as a barrier for people of God to then be open and confess much of the things that they're struggling with, the sins in which they're grappling with. Because we live in a society that says, no, you're fine. You're perfect the way you are. Your desires, they're good. My question is, for all of us, is how, as people of God, do we reject society's vision of what's good and become a people that are more vulnerable and open with the struggles in which we walk through, the sins that we grapple with? Mm -hmm. uh, be thinking, because we're a community that likes to, we don't want to be an echo chamber, so if you have ideas, please throw them in. Uh, I think firstly it's important to acknowledge that uh, inside the church we have the ethic of Jesus. Outside the church they have their own ethic. Both communities are trying to figure out what to do with what they've done. Right? In the community we have grace. Outside of the community we have to find a way to escape being the villain or being guilty or breaking a moral law. And have you noticed that there is like this... Uh, you know, the non-objective um, non truth um, and, and the shift away from, like, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, morality, and it was like, do your own thing, and now it's like a new morality is kind of earth, where it's like, there's a total new moral ethic, and people have been discovering what that is, uh, and it's just been a mess, you know? There's always going to be an ethic that the world builds, but uh, the story is is what is going to establish our ethic. Um, and for us, it would be the way of Jesus in Scripture. Um, any other thoughts on that? Uh, you asked a follow-up question there. I'm trying to remember what it was. It was something in the nature of... Um, yeah. So, <clears throat> because of living in this age period, that rejects objective truth. How can we, as a people of God, be open and more willing to sharing with one another things in which the sins that we're grappling with? How can we normalize that? Because um, I'll be honest, it's still, for me, as someone that's been walking with Jesus for, since, what, October 2006, I can't do the math on that, but it's well, 15 years um, since I rededicated my life. It can still be a struggle to be open and honest about the things in which, the sins in which I grapple with. Yeah, I think it's just normalizing it. The, the, you want to normalize the fact that we are broken, but not normalize the fact that it doesn't matter, because it actually does matter if I'm um, unloving to my neighbor, it matters. If I'm um, selfish, it impacts the community. And that's the thing. The, the idea in society that we're all living in like an apartment complex, and it's like, hey, you do you in your unit. As long as it's still out in my unit, you don't judge me, I won't judge you, right? But that's not a, an appropriate picture of culture. Culture isn't an apartment complex that you can tidally isolate off. It's more of like a pool, and if you pee in a pool, it's going to soak all over the place. And so it's just a, a nonsense way of thinking about like culture interactive and sociological interactions. It's, it's, it's nonsense, and it can't last. And we're seeing that now, where you have um, two different worldviews, like where uh, sexual freedom and expression of sexuality comes up against like uh, a very uh, traditional or modest culture of um, uh, like 
being a Muslim, and the two don't play nicely together. And that's one of many examples. Um, but to cultivate, what I want to say is to cultivate a space of um, normalizing humanness is important. The church and culture have done a bad job of this. The church has not cultivated a place where transparency is welcome. And so many in the world have experienced a Christianity that is duplicitous and it's hiding and what's the next pastor that's going to fall publicly because what you see is not what you get. And it's such a travesty to um, the honor and glory of Jesus because the world doesn't have a picture of wholeness and wholeness doesn't look like perfection. Wholeness looks like an ever-frequent return to the way of Jesus. And that's what I want to see around here. Uh, guys, toss in some ideas about how else we can cultivate uh, transparency and um, normalizing and confession. So I was going to ask the question should confession be public? Because it's easy for me to be at home and go, hey, I did X, Y, Z. And then just kind of pull it off. But when I sit next to somebody that I'm in the community with and say, say I did this, and it really made me really sad. I mean, I justified it, because who I did is And then, And then I get like, all nodded up. But until I tell somebody else, it just means that that's where that community comes. Because when we try to be perfect, that's when we fall. Because we can't do that. We don't. So when you take off the gap and say, hey, this is where I am, say I just go to there, and I can then go, wow, I'm not the only one that's pretty sure. And um, yeah, just that openness and acceptance. But we don't have room for that. I don't know where to, other than in small communities. Yeah, Frederick Buechner in his um, biography called Telling Secrets says it's important that we, as a community and society, uh, cultivate spaces and tell our secrets because it creates a community and space for others to share their secrets with you. Um, to be fully known is to be human and to long for what are made for. And to live in secrecy is to live a false humanity. And it will only stifle our ability to actually flourish in the fullness of Christ. Um, the, the element that comes to my mind when you, you share that is three scriptures. One, um, Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you go to make an offering, remember your brother has something against you. So you've done something wrong, and you're making an offering. He says, go to one-on-one, talk to him, deal with him. Okay? That's your number one thing. Um, if the if the consequence for a sin is so public that it affects a lot of people, the confession needs to be in line with that because you're trying to address the pain um, in, in proportion with what, what's been caused. So that's where it's sometimes it's like, okay, how do we walk this out, especially when there's uh, bigger implications. Um, third one is in James 5 where it says, confess your sins and you might be healed. Um, I actually think that James 5 actually is addressing like inner turmoil that we'll see in uh, Psalm 35 with David or 34. Um, some people are sick because they're carrying the shame and secret of sin in their life. Um, I'm not saying it's a curse. I'm saying we are whole beings, uh, emotional, mental, spiritual, right, physical. Um, and so my spirituality affects my physicality. And so I think there's some interchange there. There's a mystery to it. It's not a curse, that kind of thing. But I think it is, you can literally become ill from sin, right? Experience that. And it's hell. It's hell. Um, yeah, so I think there is some, some component there. Um, as I was doing study, one of the uh, theologians said that if there's a, a sin that you are really struggling under the weight of, you don't need to talk to somebody else to be forgiven. 
but sometimes it can actually help you to break out of secrecy to invite someone to it. So, yeah. Any other questions? Um, I do want to get into the practice, but yeah. Morning. I think there's um, a fear and accountability also, especially if you've been brought up in a shame-based um, evangelical upbringing. Um, people are afraid to share where they're vulnerable in sin because of like the repercussions or the discipline and the lack of love and acceptance and walking alongside of you to help correct that. You know, going back to what the biblical standard is, but there's a lot of fear involved in that. It's a hard thing to be vulnerable and accountable. Yeah. The other side of the question is what do we do as a community? What we have done or do. And so it's really important that we yeah, hold sin as it is, but also hold with grace the dignity of the struggle. You know? I think it takes resilience in a community to love each other through challenges. That's what I was going to say, too, uh, in line with you, Marina. As a church, as a community, we have to be, uh, to know that we each, we're all fallible, we all have sinned, and uh, to be able to uh, forgive the person outwardly and not judge, because I know in past, in other churches, I've, I've known that there's so many that walk away because they've been judged because they were vulnerable and expressed, you know, said their sin, and they may in there, and it's mostly, sadly, a lot of our community is Christians that hurt the other Christian because they're not accepting them and they're not forgiving. And I think as a community, we need to forgive those that have sinned, love and compassion. And I think that's what the church needs more of, is more compassion for those that are brokenhearted. Yeah. That biblical tolerance is not the acceptance and embrace of anything. It's bearing with It's long suffering with one another. So I'm not going to give up. Um, I'm just close our time and lead us into a time of, of prayer and meditation, if that's okay. Um, thank you guys for participating in that. Uh, this coming week, we'll be talking about how to process and to purge ourselves of the sins that have been committed against us and to find freedom from, from some of those things. So each of these three weeks, there'll be a meditative section where you are able to interact with the Spirit. And uh, that's what we're going to enter into right now before we worship. Um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says, before you take communion, allow your heart to, to be analyzed, to see the state of your soul, to come to your senses. Because the table of communion is, is symbolic of the lengths Jesus went to meet us in our brokenness, to take on the punishment that was ours, and to not break eye contact with love while doing it. And so as we take the bread during worship, I want that to be the table of you going with Jesus. I'm so thankful you paid for my sin. And I want nothing to stand between us. I'm going to read from you the words of King David. King David, widely known as a man after God's own heart, but also a man who failed deeply. David in Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. I invite you to take some time right now. If it's helpful to read along with me, go ahead. But I invite you to ask the Spirit to search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Mm-hmm. 
and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the path everlasting. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. For you will not delight in sacrifice for I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering the sacrifices of God on a broken spirit broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise these things. I invite you in this moment to give the Spirit free reign of your thoughts, of your thoughts. Knowing that repentance is like a spiritual bath Joy and singing, and 
would the world see the glory of your name and your presence and your goodness and your majesty. Oh, you are God. God, we invite you to do a cleansing. Make us white as snow. wiping away of the junk would we be able to experience your spirits renewing fresh breath from the Lord. Lord, we love you and we can at this time of worship and 